TV series, Love American Style, Opener, 1969 through 1974. Courtesy Parker Margolin Productions Incorporated, Paramount Television, and the American Broadcasting Company. Comedian, Michelle Wolf, at the 2018 White House Correspondent Dinner, courtesy C-SPAN. Mike Pence is a weirdo, though. He's a weird little guy. He might, he won't meet with other women without his wife present. When people first heard this, they were like, that's crazy. But now in this current climate, they're like, that's a good witness. <laughs> Which, of course, brings me to the Me Too movement. It's probably the reason I'm here. They were like, a woman's probably not going to jerk off in front of anyone, right? And to that I say, don't count your chickens. There's a lot of parties. Now, I've worked in a lot of male-dominated fields before comedy. I worked at a tech company. And before that, I worked on Wall Street. And honestly, I've never really been sexually harassed. That being said, I did work at Bear Stearns in 2008. So although I haven't been sexually harassed, I've definitely been fucked. Yeah, that whole company went down on me without my consent. And no men got in trouble for that one either. Comedian, Sam Morial, in 2018. It's a good time to be alive. Great time to be a man. Right? The bar is it's nice and low. It's nice. I was with a girl the other night. She said, I don't think we should have sex. I was like, oh, that's cool. And then she goes, wow, you're a great guy. I was like, that's all it takes? I'm pretty sure the alternative is a felony. I don't know if I'm a great guy, but I'll take it. I had a, I had a good mom growing up, you know? Ever since I was a little kid, my mom would say, no means no. And she was talking about cookies, but I put it together, you know? I, uh, I met a girl after a show in Florida. I'm not bragging, but I, I do pretty well in Tampa. And she, she said, I'll drive you back to your hotel, but there's no way that I'm coming upstairs. I said, whatever you want to do is fine with me. So we're in the parking lot. We're making out. She said, all right, I'll come upstairs, but there is no way that you're getting laid. And I was like, am I being recorded right now? <laughs> this feels like a Me Too sting operation. <laughs> so very loudly into her chest, I said, that's totally cool. <laughs> this is Sam Morrell, March 22nd, 2018. <laughs> Timestamp. True crime. Sex. Political conspiracy. Celebrity gossip. Murder. UFOs, crooked officials, the occult, assassination, courtroom drama, rape, corporate scams, scandal sheets. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Scandal Sheet. My name is Thad Housley, and welcome to our Valentine's Day special. And I am joined by my remarkable co-host, Ellie. Hi, thanks for having me back. Well, it's not like you're having you back. You're our co-host, so you're always here. So, <laughs> Thanks for having me always back okay. as a co-host. I, I'm having a lot of fun doing That's this. <laughs> so, I mean, what could possibly be a better way to celebrate our national holiday of love and romance than an investigation into sexual harassment? I mean, if you think about it, it's really more of just a warm up for any like, you know, blind date situations that people might get themselves into this week in case that leads to any sexual harassment claims. I'm sure this is just a warm up for things that might end up happening once people have love on their mind. Well, hopefully that won't occur. Now, now you you are happily married. Do you have any big romantic plans with your own spouse or are you at liberty to disclose? Oh, I mean, I guess I'm at liberty to disclose that we don't really do anything for Valentine's Day normally. So uh -huh. I, maybe we'll make breakfast or something, but we're we're pretty low maintenance. Got it, got it. So you're not you're not one of those holdouts for big time jewelry or flowers or anything like that. No, no. I think if anything, we just make a nice dinner at home, and you know, we just say don't don't expect anything. 
because most of, most of the time <laughs> we're working anyway. By the time we remember to celebrate Valentine's Day, it's already passed, and you know it's old news. Mm-hmm. Gotcha, gotcha. And as always, we are joined by our brilliant artificial intelligence engine, Bernice. Thank you. While my creators genderized me with this voice and name, I am a computer. I have neither the need or requirement to reproduce. Unlike you two, I will live forever, as long as there is electricity. But both you, Ellie, and members of your larger species, are burdened by the necessity of engaging in sexual intercourse, in order to perpetuate your species. In the history of your species, your distant ancestors have experimented with numerous approaches to gender roles. But in your present societal and political context, you are presented with challenges that bring your intrinsic, primordial instincts into direct conflict with the enlightenment values you have only relatively recently built your society upon. You have my sincere sympathies. Wow, Bernice. Good sort of brutal summation of this episode, I guess. Uh, Ellie? Yeah, Bernice, you know, I think that's about as depressing as the future of the Hallmark card store chain. Uh, We may need to start pulling your plug in the month of February from now on. (laughs) So, Ellie, I have always harbored a desperate desire to spend the rest of my life in the Witness Protection Program. So, here we go. Today, we are diving headfirst into the hellfires of the culture wars and the political controversy uh, by attempting to have a meaningful and intelligent conversation about sexual harassment, the Me Too movement, and the ongoing debate on gender roles in 21st century America. Do you think we can pull this off with a degree of understanding from our listeners? I mean, Bernice didn't seem to be too understanding, so I'm hoping that an audience of humans will be more understanding. But I know we have a lot of listeners, and I can almost guarantee that we're not going to please everyone. But maybe we can please one person. You never know. Okay. Well, let's go for that one person. <laughs> and hope the rest of the rest of them don't cancel us. Right. So I, the first thing I wanted to talk about was, was sort of the scope of this conversation. So, uh, and you tell me whether you disagree. I see a big difference between the full-on sort of hardcore serial rapists like Harvey Weinstein or Bill Cosby both serving very long prison sentences at the moment, and a misled person making unwanted remarks, advances in the workplace or other social situations. And I think we can stipulate that there there have always been and are always going to be felony criminals in this world, and no amount of sensitivity training or nothing we do or say is going to change the behavior of those particular people. So I clearly understand there are authentic problems like mental illness and sociopathology, as in those previously stated people. But I think we're doing kind of a a notch below that. Do you agree? I would agree with that. Yes, I think there is there is a spectrum and we're not really dealing with the end of the spectrum like Harvey Weinstein or Bill Cosby. Um, So I absolutely would would agree with that. Okay, great. Great. So, Bernice, help us out a little bit. What are the synonyms for sexual harassment? According to thesaurus.com, the term sexual harassment has the following synonyms. Inappropriate behavior, exploitation, impropriety, unprofessional behavior, offensive sexual advances, intimidation, unwanted sexual advances. Ellie, sexual harassment and rape is not limited to women. I sent you a 2020 summary report by the National Sexual Violence Resource Center, and I was surprised by their heavily sourced findings. How about you? I was also pretty surprised. I thought that entire report was really fascinating. I mean, it talked about how 43% of men will experience or have reported experience some form of sexual harassment and or assault in their lifetime. Right. And I think it's definitely helpful to remember that sexual harassment doesn't only happen to women. It can also happen to men. And I also think that it's important to 
acknowledge the fact that as more and more women are in the workplace and taking power in higher levels in the workplace, I think those numbers are actually going to keep going up. I think there is, yeah, yeah, the num- the number of males, you know, who report sexual harassment. And I also think that in men too, there's like a, a cultural reluctance to report anything. And these numbers might be a lot lower than what they actually are. But I think as our society kind of starts to shift and as more women are in more positions of power, then I think there are going to be some men who really start coming forward and, you know, reporting their their own stories. I think at some point it's going to be less of a sign of weakness or people being taken advantage of in a when they're in a vulnerable state. Mm-hmm. So all that said, and I, uh, those are all really great points. In the interest of keeping this podcast a reasonable length, I think we should narrow the field a little bit and really just focus on the role of women as potential victims or targets. I'm not dissing the dudes. I just think we need to focus. And it does seem to be that the role of women in society is what is at the the root of the recent surge in interest, like the Me Too movement. Is that okay with you? Yeah, I mean, that's fine with me. I'm I'm a woman. I like talking about women. So, you know, as long as you're fine with that. I like to say it's all about yeah. me. It's, it's all about me. And right, me. there it so is. Yeah, it is, it. it is. So first, I thought we could just sort of kind of, you know, before we jump head first into the deep end of the pool, maybe we could step back a little bit and create a little context and talk about the evolution of uh, gender roles in America. So, Bernice, can you give us a little history lesson? Certainly. Gender roles were remarkably consistent during the first 300 years of the colonized portions of the North American mainland, the early 1600s to the late 1800s. The vast majority of women lived in the domestic sphere. While men had jobs, could vote, and had full freedom to appear in public, particularly in pubs, bars, and saloons. Any woman who was not a prostitute was prohibited from these public establishments. But the Industrial Revolution in the late 19th century gradually changed American society dramatically. The hundreds of burgeoning factories had an insatiable appetite for labor. Unable to recruit white men to leave their ancestral farms and businesses, capitalists recruited African Americans from the United States South, former peasants and serfs from second-tier European nations, and also American women of any ethnicity. Particularly during World War I, When almost 3 million young men were deployed overseas, women were welcomed into the United States workplace to replace men. Suddenly women had practical financial independence. After the war ended, they refused to retreat from the public sphere. They welcomed being sexualized and flaunted their freedom to both drink and smoke in public. In 1919 they gained the constitutional entitlement to vote. As they were 53% of the population and over 60% of loyal, registered voters. They became an unstoppable political force going forward. Uh, maybe not as bad as Sharia, but but what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think it's you have to kind of step back yeah. and you know realize that it wasn't complete suppression of women. You no. know, I, I think it, it was interesting. About a year ago, actually, I was at my grandmother's 90th birthday party, right, and we were just talking about how things were. 90 years ago. So she was born in 1931. Wow. And she was like, look, when I was a kid, you had a whole day. My mom had a whole day and that was laundry day, a whole day. And that was laundry. And she did all the family's laundry. And it's funny because now if you say, oh, what did you do today? And you know, your friend replies, oh, I did laundry. You're going to think that they're a lazy piece of shit. But like back then it took a whole day to do laundry and you know, without a washing machine, I assume yeah or you know even if you did have like a washing machine you know you had to dry your clothes like through the rollers and then you know hang them out right, to dry. Right. And it was not easy and so I think when you look on that scale of just some of your human basic necessities like food they didn't have chipotle where you could just run in and grab a food and Know, less than 10 minutes and have a whole they meal didn't. and you had to go to the grocery store and you had to oh, eat no. I know they, there was no Chipotle there were no you know now you can just put your laundry in the laundry machine and you can spend the rest of the day watching Netflix if you want to but you're not going to spend your whole day no doing no 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 and 
I think we maybe, I always like to maybe give those women just a little more credit because it's not like they were just chained to the house. It's not to say they didn't want to do more than cook and clean and do laundry and take care of the kids, but that just due to technological advancements took a long time. That took the vast majority of your day just to keep your family clean and fed. So there just wasn't enough time. Like, I think time to go out and do other things. That being said, though, I as we started having better technology for washing clothes and cooking and food became a lot cheaper, I think it absolutely makes sense that women's liberation movement of the 60s and 70s happened. And I mean, I come from a family of working women, but when I look back at it, my mother's mother, she worked because she had to right. work. And, you know, she worked because they needed the right. money. And then my mom worked and my dad stayed at home and raised us. But nowadays, too, and this isn't to discount working women either. I am a working woman. But most households can't afford for one parent to stay home and raise children. They A lot of households are financially dependent on two incomes. So I think it's really interesting to, to see it all on like a, a greater scale. I, I like to think that women have never just been like locked in the house for hundreds of years prior to the 60s and 70s and even prior to the Industrial Revolution. But I think they really did play an important role in our society just because they weren't politicians, you know, or engineers doesn't necessarily mean that they didn't have a significant impact on the health and safety of their children. No, of course, of families. course. But I mean, I'm just saying to be prohibited from participating in the public sphere, you know, not being able to vote until 1919, right? So, you know, I mean, there's just so many things that they were not allowed to do, which, which to our eyes would seem completely unacceptable today. Well, yeah, being able to vote or like even just having a little bit of financial independence right. to do little things for yourself, buy little gifts for yourself, or I don't know, take a class or have a hobby or something. I think if it is hard when you if you don't have any money, then you really don't have power. And so I, I think it's absolutely significant that, yeah, women, if, if women have money, they have power. And, and that's really important. So sorry about my earlier tangent about women working, but I've uh, I think it's, I, I get asked about, you know, being a female in the, in the workplace a lot. And I, I don't think it's all bad or all good. There's always a lot of sides to the story. Mm -hmm. So, well, and you had mentioned the, the sexual revolution of the sixties and seventies. So I was kind of hoping that you would comment on that. Now, Obviously, you were not born then. I was born in the 60s, but <laughs> where I was living, I never even heard of Woodstock until I was in college in the mid-80s. So I had absolutely no idea what was going on back then when it actually was going on, right? I had to wait for the History Channel documentaries and the PBS documentaries. So, um, but obviously, the effects of that were... Continue to resonate today. I mean, the the whole idea of your sexuality being limited to only a husband in a nuclear family rather than the very possibility of premarital sex or et cetera, et cetera. And their slogan was, at the time, sex, drugs, and rock and roll, all right? Sex is the first word. Yeah. Obviously, more important than the drugs and the rock and roll, which were still important. But so I don't know. I mean, in terms of your generation today, what do you think? If you had to go back to before the 60s. Like if, if my generation had to live before the 1960s? Is that what you're asking? If we threw you into the way back machine, and I'm, in, I'm sure you've seen all the commercials with the, with the 1950s housewives and, you know, look, this convenient appliance will really help your life. So it's just a totally different world than when if you turn on that. And the reason I heard about Woodstock was because I guess it was one of the anniversaries and they played this five-hour documentary about that Woodstock concert. You know, naked people are having sex in mud puddles, don't eat the brown acid. I mean, all of this crazy, crazy, crazy stuff that was just mind-blowing to me in 1985 or 1986. Well, yeah. So it's funny you say that this is 
maybe a little off topic, but one time I went with my friends, uh, a group of friends to Jamaica and our shuttle to, yeah, yeah. And our shuttle to our resort had already left because our flight was delayed. So people at the little coordination desk were like, oh, you can just take this next shuttle to this other resort and they'll drop you off at your resort. And we were like, okay, that works. Thanks. You know? And so we're on the shuttle and man, we're making some jokes and then they're making some jokes. And, and finally we realized that these people are going to like a nude resort, Uh, like a nude, like swingers mm. resort. And it was, it would be funny because I would, I I remember making comments about, Oh, what dress should I wear? (laughs) You know, like, Oh, I brought some fancier dresses for dinner. They're like, you don't need clothes. And I was like, yeah, you're right. I don't need clothes. But like, I had no idea what, (laughs) that they were actually probably going to be eating dinner with no clothes on. Wow. So a hundred percent nudity. But yeah, it was, yeah, it was wild. Uh, but not that we went. I mean, we we're just on the shuttle with these people and they dropped us off on our oh, I see. at our right. clothed resort on the way to their resort. But let's see. Yeah, I my generation is so vast and has so many different preferences. Mm-hmm. It almost seems like people who I know and probably myself included, you almost have two different versions of yourself. You have like the work professionalism, the professional version of yourself that is like very just nice and polite and trying your absolute best to just be politically correct. And then, and then you have your night version, right? Which is like where you get a few drinks in you and you're out and about, you know, then you, then you kind of want to live up like that, you know, 1960s and 70s like sex drugs rock and roll like lifestyle you know because you kind of go out on the town with your girlfriends and you're like I have my own money I have my own job so nobody could tell me what to do and I think we're our generation like millennial women especially we're almost stuck in this life of kind of having to live them both because a lot of us do hold down like very professional jobs and then on the other side of that we have to we we want to have fun because we are empowered and we do have, you know, our own spending money and we do have our own free time. And so I, I think it's almost like a switch that flips, you know, like business in the daytime and party on the weekends. Which men maybe had been forever the same way, right? They had their domestic home life and lived alternate lives outside of home and work, right? They said... In London, there were more paramours and concubines than there were wives. Oh, in I the, didn't know in the nineteenth century. Wow. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, I mean, I guess that even fast forwarding a little bit to like the nineteen fifties in the United States, I love that show Mad Men. Right. And I, I don't know how accurate that is, but yeah, if, if women are at the point where we can call the shots on our own life, then we have the ability to do that. Yeah, we get to finally live live like the men have been mm-hmm. living which i guess is the whole point of the sex drugs rock and right movement. right freedom like, freedom you know the yeah freedom to to do what they want i think it's just whenever those you know those lines get blurred that's obviously when people become a little more uncomfortable and then that's when you start to get sexual harassment claims and things like that well that's the thing so I don't know how much, like you mentioned, the Mad Men series that supposedly takes place in the 50s and 60s. I don't know how much these sorts of claims were being made. But, you know, once you open that Pandora's box, you also open the door to abuse of the freedom. Right? Right. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and I think you also open it up to different people's interpretation, right? I mean, we, the millennial generation is what? 70 or 80 million people let's just say half of those are women you're looking at 35 to 40 million women who might have different expectations of what they want from people and I think one thing I always think about with like harassment claims and stuff is a lot of people say well they they're unwanted gestures or you know unwanted advancements and I guess I I can't help but think of how many things in my life are unwanted and like there's nothing really that I can do about it, but that's just, I can't help but wonder if that's just part of life. I don't want them to be out of cheese when I go to get my burrito, you know, but sometimes <laughs> they are. I don't want them. I don't want inflation to be the problem mm. that it is. 
Right. But it is. I don't want it to be ridiculously hot in Phoenix in the summer, but it is. I mean, I guess I just think there are a lot of things in life that are unwanted and why it's just such an interesting word to describe sexual harassment claims or something, because I think just because something is unwanted and makes you feel uncomfortable doesn't necessarily mean you have to react in a such a retaliatory way. Hmm. That might not be the right word, retaliatory way. No, I hear what you're saying. So I, yes, I see there's an evolving uh, point of view here that I'm, I'm starting to sense. But, um, you know, we can't really talk about this subject without talking about the current um, uh, carrier of the flag, um, you know, called the Me Too movement. And there have been so many women's organizations in the history of the U.S., especially uh, in the 20th century, the Nationals Women Party, the League of Women Voters, which my mom was a member of, the National Organization of Women. Uh, you know, what is the Me Too movement and how is it different from all those other uh, organizations that came before it? Well, I think a big thing about Me Too is that, one, it was really started by celebrities. Right. Um, and a lot of people like to listen to celebrities and they do have a bigger voice. And then the other thing about, you know, the Me Too movement is that it uh, it was really amplified by social media and by giving everyone a voice to share their story. So I think that's why it became so big is just because it, you know, all of a sudden everybody has the opportunity to to, or I'm sorry, everybody has the opportunity to participate in the conversation. Um, and that's, that's just what gave it so much momentum. Well, I, I think you make a really good point because, you know, from my point of view, I do look at it like, and it's like, wait a minute. Um, you know, it does seem that there's a tremendous focus, even though when you go back, I mean, it's been around for a really long time. And, and the founder of it was a black uh, African-American woman. And so it sort of like was simmering for years before it finally took off when, as you say, celebrities jumped on the bandwagon. And I think of people like, you know, Gwyneth Paltrow, um, uh, you know, harassed by Harvey Weinstein or maybe some other movie producers or studio executives. And, you know... Of course, I have empathy for anybody, but still, you know, it just seems like there's a there's a, just a gargantuan order of magnitude of difference between, you know, somebody, you know, slapping her ass and then the millions of waitresses, hotel workers and women and other service jobs that are probably mistreated in much more profound, significant ways every single day in this in this country. And, you know, let's just start with with uh, uh, waging inequality. Yeah. And I, I think that's one of the things that I've really struggled with, with the Me Too movement is the fact that it's, it only gained momentum with a lot of these celebrities who came forward, who are already in, or who are now in, you know, very big, powerful positions where they have a lot of money and they, they don't have a lot to lose by coming mm -hmm. forward with this. Um, I mean, that that's why this whole movement took off in the first place. And I, I really struggle to uh, jump on board with, with their movement because they are in their position because yes, they were, you know, sexually harassed at some point and, you know, they ended up making it through the industry to be in the position that they're in, but there are so many other people out there, so many other women and men who are in just terrible jobs, terrible working conditions, and they don't have the money, they don't have the power to say no. And you're right, it's like, you know, if, if somebody offers you an extra $2 an hour, um, you know, to like slap your ass or something while you're a waitress, I mean, you're probably going to take it because you just have no money, you have no power in that situation. And I think it's almost a little um, unfair to to be in a position like that, make it to the top and then talk about how bad it is when you're already at the top, when you're, you know, people like Gwyneth Paltrow, I mean, they are untouchable mm -hmm. at this point. So, um, you know, there's, there, there's an iceberg of people underneath them who are still, you know, just in these, you know, terrible working situations. And yeah, I, I think it's these people who are super vulnerable and they have, 
they have no way to say no um, because you have to put food on the table. And it's the, you know, the, the me too movement, I think sometimes misses the mark there and that it's not just sexual harassment. I mean, it's the fact that if you have to work three jobs just to keep a roof over your head, you have vastly different priorities than Gwyneth mm-hmm. Paltrow does, you know? Well, and you're not, but you're not, a Hollywood movie star or, you know, Beyonce or an entertainer, but you are in what most people would consider an elite profession, commercial airline pilot, um, you know, among all professions that's, you know, it's a lot cooler than like accountant or something like that. Um, and, and, and of course that is a profession that at least historically in, in, um, in the 20th century or since, since there has been commercial airline flight, it has been dominated uh, primarily by men. So from your standpoint, how big is is sexual harassment a problem in your life and among your extended colleagues and, and other people in the business? Yeah, I mean, that's that's a tough one because I've heard secondhand stories of of women who were put in uncomfortable situations. So you've luckily um, escaped heard, this yourself. I, I personally okay. have. Yes. And. I think, you know, it's it's tough because, yeah, it's, it's, it's hard to tell whether, you know, somebody I know is in an, you know, one of those unwanted situations or a very uncomfortable situation or a situation where you just really can't say no. Um, but I, I think um, it's, it's an interesting industry, absolutely, with like pilots and flight attendants. Um, but I think for the most part, um, those are uh just the the me too movement and you know a lot of a lot of the workplace education that's gone on about you know sexual harassment has really helped to quell a lot of that behavior um and i yeah i'm i'm lucky enough to have not really had an issue with that um and i i don't think it's a big industry problem um but i'm probably gonna hear about it now that i've said that so um well i i have a little story um so one of the so i'm a film school graduate and when i got out of college and it was the you know the mid 80s mid starting to get the late 80s and uh, some of my first professional jobs were making employee training films for uh, big companies or government agencies, etc. And meaning employee training films uh, for sensitivity training about uh, treatment of women in the workplace and treatment of minorities in the workplace. So they were basically targeted at Caucasian people and saying, okay, here's what you're not supposed to do, but it wasn't really that it was really more like a role playing thing. We'd actually hire actors and we'd show, you know, some kind of a bad scenario and I might write the script, the, the HR person or whoever would give me like the, the core content and I would just turn it into drama. But, but here I am, it's the mid eighties. I'm already doing these kinds of things for all these different companies and, and government agencies. And so so I was uh, immersed in it right from the very beginning. And then so it, it just, you know, and all these decades have passed. And then later, you know, in the 90s, the 2000s, the 2000 teens, I'm working in a Fortune 500 company, not in the capacity as a filmmaker. I'm actually making digital products for the marketplace. But as a requirement, I had to go twice a year through these same sort of training sessions, sensitivity training, how to avoid sexual harassment, anything that's inappropriate and in terms of women or minorities or people, uh, 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 you know, over the age of 60 for, you know, in just like any conceivable type of sensitivity. And so with just this is just this wall of uh, I don't want to say propaganda, but training um, uh, influence. And it just seems to me, how could anything get through this? I mean, obviously you're talking about lean, you know, little companies that don't have things like that, but, but the minor, majority of the American workforce, and yet still these things happen. You know, how does Harvey Weinstein get through that? <laughs> well, I don't think Harvey Weinstein was like, why? <laughs> 
<laughs> well, that's I probably true. Think, yeah. I mean, his he walked out the door. Yeah. Watching them. <laughs> I think he just outsourced that. Yeah, to yeah. Assistant, you know, he's like, you know, uh, click through this for me or whatever. I, you know, I think that's one of those interesting things. How, you know, a lot of times there there are just certain things that you can't teach. You know, it just has to do with how you're raised as a human being. Um, and they're just always going to be assholes, right? Like that you can't right. train that out of somebody. Right. No amount of like workplace PowerPoints and videos. It doesn't matter how masterfully they're created is going to like, you know, teach somebody to not be an asshole. Um, and I don't know if there's a way maybe we can like find the DNA marker for that and start like cutting that out of like children. But I mean, yeah, if you're, if if you're an asshole, then like sensitivity training at work is like not going to do anything for you. Um, but I, you know, I think part of it is a little, a little cultural, you know, I think part of it just depends on your personality. Um, I mean, I fly with a lot of really, really awesome, friendly people who, you know, it, it's just fun. They're fun to be around. And, you know, we make jokes. And I think, you know, if it were somebody with a different personality, it could, you know, be just, it, it could be taken as, as harassment, you know, even if it's not sexual harassment, you know, somebody might be like, whoa, geez, somebody needs to call HR on this person. But I think once you start to get comfortable with people and you learn different people's level of humor, um, you know, you can just kind of open up to them a little bit more. And then when, you know, when personalities and cultures uh, start to start to clash you know maybe somebody else enters the work group or um something then it, it can change i mean i think one example is i you know i had this uh this uh crew the other day and you know we had some really really old school flight attendants and um they were so nice and uh but they they were older and they were they've been around for forever and they kept calling my uh the, the person i was flying with they kept calling him honey mm. You know, and they'd be like, okay, honey, right. okay, honey. And he loved it because it made him feel young. You know, I mean, there's a guy in his 40s, you know, he's like, I haven't been called honey in forever. And, you know, uh, whereas like if he were to turn around and call me honey, then it would be totally different. Um, so I I think it just, a lot of it's just so situational um, that you can't script it out in a video that's going to change somebody's life and personality no, that, 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 that's a good point you can i can pull into a gas station in west virginia and uh you know go in and you know pay my bill and go hey hon how you doing <laughs> right <laughs> which right. like you say i could not say to but, a normal person in in my you know any workplace i've ever been in but uh and i uh, right and i mean you really couldn't even probably do that at like a Starbucks burrito no, or no. something and not, you wanted them to spit in your in coffee. County, so no. <laughs> oh, God. So I don't know, did, were you able to see that clip where they got like four people who are pro me too and anti me too? Two I, men, two women on each side, you know, talking to one another? I did not, unfortunately. Okay. Okay. No, that's okay. That's okay. But you know, and the thing was, that was just, and, you know, the whole setting was like, uh, you know, I forget what the the brand was, but it's, you know, it's this sort of centrist belief that if we all sit down and talk, um, we'll, able, we'll be able to kind of um, get beyond our differences. Well, you know, all these people express their point of views in a very, very rational, cool, intelligent way. And yet nothing was accomplished. You know, they heard each other. They still walked away with the exact same beliefs that they had when they walked in the door. Now, at the end, everybody hugged, everybody kissed, and then they walked away. But it's like they still held their views. You know, the the people, the anti Me Too people were still anti. The pro people were still pro. And the, and the okay. kinds of things that they would bring up were legitimate on both sides because obviously, they're. I mean, I don't want to trivialize the fact of when these things occur, they can be extraordinarily damaging um, psychologically, but also from a career perspective, right? So if you're being threatened to do something, if you're a woman being threatened to do something, uh, and if you don't do it, uh, either you won't get a promotion, you'll get fired, et cetera, et cetera. Or conversely, if you're a man 
and you're being accused of something and you believe unfairly accused, just the um, accusation itself can can uh, at least terminate your employment in that particular workspace. Right. Right. And this is, I mean, I think this is where it's hard. I, I would have to go back and watch that video, but, you know, I think this is where it's hard where, you know, you've got the party in the front or business in the front party in the back mindset that both women and men now have. And when you start to blur those lines, you know, then yeah, you have people's careers being ruined for, you know, things that they did on a Friday night or, you know, of course now you have the whole online sphere to, um, you know, throw in there as well. Um, I, yeah, I, I well, would have what to. What makes it I, even I more difficult is that it's almost impossible to prove so many of the allegations. Um, if they're happening, you know, if, if, you know, if, if it isn't a situation where actual um, rape has taken place, where there's empirical evidence that can be measured, you know, you can go to a medical facility and, and prove something, but if it's just words spoken, threats made, unwanted advances like you were talking about before. How do you prove that unless you have a secret recorder somewhere? You know, it really does come down and that's what this, in this particular video, everybody, everybody was saying, well, it's he said, she said. Well, you know? and I, I think the really hard thing about that too is you can never prove how somebody felt. You know, and I, I right, think right. that- And the that fact is... that the person that said something really was just tone deaf as to how it was being received. Yeah. And I can say from personal experience, I've been on both sides of that. I mean, I have absolutely been tone, the tone deaf person, you know, saying something. And then later I'm like, wow, I cannot believe those words came out of my mouth. And then, you know, that probably made somebody else feel extremely uncomfortable. Um, but then I've also been on the other end of that where, you know, somebody says something or does something that, if I wasn't so good at brushing things off, I could absolutely say, okay, I think that was harassment or, um, you know, report it. But, um, I, I, but the hardest thing is that, you know, you, you can never prove how somebody, you know, you can't put how somebody feels in front of a jury. And I forget who said the quote, but I think about it a lot. And it's, you know, it's that people will rarely remember what you said, but they'll always remember how you made them feel. And I, I think that that has so much significance with, you know, any sort of workplace harassment or, you know, just uh, Friday night bar harassment or whatever. People don't like to feel vulnerable and, you know, people don't like to feel that they're, you know, being put on the spot. But the reality, especially if you're, you know, out in a situation looking for a mate, like maybe on Valentine's Day, you're going to be vulnerable because anytime, you know, any anytime you're going on a date or opening yourself up to someone, um, you know, you you are putting yourself in a vulnerable position. And and so everybody feels a little vulnerable. It's just, you know, what what could potentially push you over the edge. Um, it's it's hard to say. There's there's no I think there's no recipe, you know, that'll fit everybody. You know, one of the things I wanted to ask you about, and, and you're, you know, at your age, you definitely have been, you probably can barely remember a time when there wasn't social media. So I wanted to ask you about that because I thought maybe, you know, would, would this, with the Me Too movement, would, would this level of recognition, this level of um, uh, cultural concern be possible? Without social media, because like, let's say, you know, there's a lot of like A-list actresses. It would be, let's go back to the Gwyneth Paltrow example. Okay. Back in the thirties, the forties, the fifties, like the golden age of Hollywood studios. Right. And now they're in their eighties and they're writing their memoirs and they're talking about, you know, the Betty White or Shirley Jones. And they're talking about all the studio executives that hit on them and they couldn't, you know, who were they going to say anything to? Right. There was no HR. You know, how are they going to get the word out? There was nobody to complain to, right? They just had to suck it up. Um, where today, they would just pick up their phone, like Gwyneth Paltrow, and say, do little, 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 here's what Harvey Weinstein just did. You know, so has this, you know, is this rocket fuel for this thing? And, and not just this thing, a lot of other things. Black Lives Matter, I mean, we can just go down the list, but is social media rocket fuel? 
Yeah, I think I think social media is rocket fuel because everybody does have a voice. But I think the other reality of social media and just the internet and being able to publish whatever you want about whoever you want adds more to the fire. So I think a good example is how um, there was like an anonymous woman who posted about her date with Aziz Ansari um, you know, and how it was uncomfortable and he made some unwanted advances. And there've been a lot of criticisms of her post because, you know, they, a lot of critics have said, well, you know, is he, you know, he can't read your mind, you know, that's, that's really what he's guilty of is not being a mind reader. Um, and then, you know, other people have said, well, you know, even if you said you, you know, didn't want to move forward, he, you know, he absolutely is, you know, canceled because he's guilty of, you know, sexual harassment. And I think it's, it's hard, you know, it's, it's interesting because yeah, 30 years ago, something like that would have just been, I suspect blown off as a bad date. I think, you know, I, I think that's probably what would have happened pre-internet, pre-blogs, pre, you know, just op-eds everywhere and pre-social media because now everybody has a voice but everybody has the ability to name other people in this right. like uh cyber world where you don't have to confront people face to face you know and i think that's that's really unique and different than it was uh yeah back in the 30s 40s 50s um you know, not just on a celebrity level, but also just on a regular person level. I mean, you can go on Twitter and just tag someone and say like, hey, I had a bad date with so-and-so. And, you know, just kind of see, you know, see where that goes. But all of a sudden that's out there into the world and everybody knows. Um, so you can point a lot of fingers that way. Well, and then the other thing is that another, so if social media is one driver. Um, the other thing is that either the political parties or at least uh, people on the political spectrum advocacy groups have weaponized this for their own purposes, either on one side or the other. You know, I'm for it, I'm against it, etc. And it seems to me to be very, very cynical. And it's just stoking the fires of polarization. Um you know, and, and they don't even care about the issue. They don't care about the people it's affecting. They just want to get votes. But I do. Yes, I agree. And I think it's very interesting how it is just simply used to ruin somebody's career. You know, I mean, look at like Joe Biden's, you know, sexual harassment allegations um, and like he's the president. And then like Andrew Cuomo is no longer the governor of New York, you know, right. and I, I think it's just interesting. Right. How, yeah, the, right. the, the, the victims in all situations are just totally, you know, brushed off to the side. And once again, it's just all about, you know, all about the person and it, the political arrows are used very carefully um, to, yeah, for political gain or sabotage. Um well, and that's it's interesting you make that because those guys were being accused of almost the exact same behavior, you know, inappropriate touching, like rubbing shoulders or putting your hand on a thigh or something like that. They were never being accused of rape, you know, or, or you know, whipping their junk out or anything like that. But uh, just all of this inappropriate stuff. And you're right. The New York governor had to resign. And um, I think in the case of Biden, I think the people who made the accusations were talking about like 15 years prior. So extremely difficult to um, verify those allegations in any way. But uh, but he still pretty much got off scot-free. Biden did. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's I don't know. Maybe he just. Uh, claimed and you know that he completely forgot because he was so old. I didn't really follow the story <laughs> that well. <laughs> That's we always I, fall back <laughs> on Biden's dementia. So. Yeah, that, yeah. I mean, I I didn't follow it real. I didn't follow the story because I I knew when I read the headlines, I was like, this is gonna get blown over if they really want him in office. You know, nobody's gonna care. Um, you know, if he's the guy that the DNC wants, then they're going to find a way to make it go away. Right. But right, yeah, for, right, uh, right, for right. other people, you know, like Andrew Cuomo or whatever, it's, 
like, Cuomo, no, he and then he was there, the, so. the senator from Minnesota, um, uh, Al Franken. He was yeah. destroyed by allegations, similar allegations. I know. I know. Yeah, they're just, I, I like that term, the political arrows. Um, so, and, and it is it is a shame for the victims, though. I think that that is so selfish on their part to just use it. Um, and then all of a sudden, you know, just brush the victims by the wayside and say, all right, well, good luck with your career. And, you know, thanks for coming out with your story. We appreciate it, you know. Well, and sometimes like the victims, I mean, when you look at um, Anita Hill, you know, in the Clarence Thomas hearings, which was probably before your time, but she was the first time that they, you know, a Supreme Court justice was being um, interviewed and they brought up somebody who had, had tried to make anonymous um, allegations to the committee and then yet they dragged her in there against her will, you know, under subpoena to testify. Same thing happened to that other woman who was testifying against um, Kavanaugh. I, I'm blanking on her name at the moment, but a very, very similar sis, uh, situation because essentially you were testifying, but you couldn't prove the allegations. Again, it was a he said, she said situation. Um, but, you know, here she was just, you know, wanted the committee to be aware of something and dragged against her will in front of all the TV cameras and basically had dramatically negative impacts in both their cases on their entire lives and their careers. Right. And now that and defines now that them, defines you know? Right, right. Yeah. And, and I mean, even like Monica Lewinsky, you know, and she's, oh, yeah. you know, she's that, come out another as good point, a huge, you know, figure lately, you know, for, you know, anti-bullying and things like that. But I, you know, I think it's, it's hard when that all of a sudden defines your entire life, you know, um, when you just, when you just wanted to make a, make a statement and say, Hey, I think this is why this person might not be best for the job. Um, and then you've, you've ruined that woman, not ruined that woman's life, but that's just what she's, that now that's just her reputation. Mm-hmm. So here's something very, very different take on this is that, um, and certainly we all agree, again, the Harvey Weinsteins, the Bill Cosbys, uh, et cetera, et cetera. The actual rapists are, are, are bad. They're criminals and they should be in jail. But in terms of these people who are guilty of harassment. So one of the examples I have is that when I was a little kid, somebody who was considered to be an alcoholic, a drunk, um, was considered to be um, morally um, bad. He was evil. What, you know, his condition, his or her condition was, um, was a moral failing. Same with somebody who was obese. Okay. You are, that is a moral failing of yours, right? Now, in today's world, we don't look at it that way, right? These people have uh, a disease which can be identified on a DNA sand or at least a predisposition, you know, in, in, in a chromosome that you're that way. And it can be combated through techniques that have been developed. So, so we look at those people very, very compassionately, right? right. But what we don't do is we don't look at um, – these primordial instincts, apparently, that might even in a in a in a world like ours that has been so, um, you know, I talked about all that training and we've got all this socialization that you know sets up um, uh, boundaries for us. Although it really hasn't been that long when these sorts of uh, things that we're agonizing about now were completely acceptable. I mean, we could measure in 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 only a hundred years, hundred and fifty years. Yeah, well, and I think you know, I think I mentioned earlier, like, is there a DNA marker for assholes? Like, <laughs> if we could find that, yeah, I think that would solve a lot of our problems. Like, I'm I'm all for CRISPR babies if it means no assholes. Yeah, right. Yeah. But um, I think I until we figure that out, which I think most people um, would agree that being an asshole is more nurture than it is nature. Um, you know, then, yeah, we're just kind of stuck with um, 
with these blurred lines and, you know, uh, the, the requirement to kind of, um, oh, I'm losing my words here. You're going to have to cut this out. Yeah. Um, well, but... I, I guess uh, here, let me ask you this. So, I mean, is it, I mean, if, if we can embrace, um, a behavioral issue, um, like, uh, uh, eating or alcohol or any other kind of addiction, whether it's gambling or drugs or what have you, why can't we embrace, I mean, like you said, yeah, being an asshole, but I mean, is, 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 can't we have any compassion towards, um, asshole guy like we do towards obese guy? Um, I think that once we've, um, I think that, shoot, I have so many, uh, I like part the cynical part of me wants to say, once we find a way to monetize it, then yes, there will be a way to embrace assholes. Um, but no, I think, I think a lot of assholes, you know, especially in men, you know, like in your straight men, I, I think it's just, you know, the, the testosterone competition, uh, hierarchy balance that they love, you know, they they're always competing for higher, um, statuses and they're always, um, you know, trying to win, you know, win over women and things like that. So I, I don't know if there's a way to fully embrace that. And maybe throughout the generations, if we don't embrace it, then maybe it'll just go away, but maybe not. Um, yeah, I, uh, may, I think in, I, if now that you mentioned that, if I could time travel forward a hundred years and see if we embrace, you know, assholes in the same way that we embrace <laughs> alcoholics and obese people, I, I think, um, yeah, I, I would be shocked. I, I'll come back and let you know if I find out how to time travel <laughs> and if that has happened. Um, I, I don't know. That's a great question. That's like a, that's such a great yeah futuristic question i i don't even know where to really start with answering that <laughs> so well the other thing i wanted to throw at you i know i know you're married i don't know how long you've been married but you aren't that old you must still remember dating the you know what what's kind of bizarre here is that on one hand you've got all these um apps that facilitate people hooking up with one another presumably you know, not just uh, as friends, but, you know, with some degree of intimacy, you know, like Tinder and which are just unbelievably popular and so many people use them. But at the same time, um, you know, now we're in this situation where just the average man is terrified to even, you know, propose the most innocent kind of a date, you know, let's go for coffee, let's have lunch or what have you, not only in the workplace, but in any sort of conventional social setting, you know, church, the neighborhood that you live in, um, you know, any other social institution. So you've got this bizarre thing where uh, people are being encouraged to um, be as lascivious as they want to be and at the other hand uh, you know now we're going back to the victorian age right yeah i think it's i have noticed that i think it's really interesting how people are afraid to ask people who they know on a date you know i know a lot of men who who know a woman and and i think it's because if you if you have any inkling that you might have to interact with them again in the future you don't want to be in an awkward situation. And I don't know why. Yeah, I um, I, I think it's just that part of that social degradation. Um, let me rephrase that. Uh, like, I think it's, yeah, I think it's part of the social degradation of, you know, just interacting with other human right, beings. Right. And we're just constantly on our phone all the time. It's easier to be rejected online by some total stranger than it is in person, right? I mean, this is why people make 
awful comments to people online, but they would never say that to their face. Um, and I, you know, I think maybe it's if somebody online rejects you, it's just maybe a little, a little easier to take than somebody in real life. Um, well, exactly. And what are the chances that an actual um, sustainable relationship is going to come out of somebody uh, meeting a stranger online versus, you know, the the best relationships I'm aware of began as the sturdy relationships that blossomed into romance and in a partnership or a marriage or what have you started as friendships, you know, because there was trust there. There was, you know, you knew each other, you know, and when you meet someone online and you're just going on a picture or some clever thing they said, like you said, how yeah, do you know they're and- not an asshole? <laughs> right. Until well, you meet yeah. Them. Right. And then you've already wasted a date on them. Exactly. I will say I will say I do know um quite a few successful relationships of you know where people ha- are married and have been happily married for a while um who met online. But I think I do too. I do too. I'm just saying they're the minority though. You know, I think it's interesting because so many people now um so many workplaces do not allow or discourage um, or require you to report um, inner workplace relationships, right? Like look at the, you know, latest CNN scandal. Um, and I, I think it's, um, yeah, it, right. Like they, you know, um, got in trouble for not reporting their relationship, even though they were two very high level executives. Right. And we didn't even I talk about that. It's did interesting we? <laughs> because most young people spend so much of their time and effort in their career these days that, you know, the, the fact that most workplaces don't allow a relationship within the workplace really actually limits you because a lot of those people who you trust or who you might be friends with, or who you might be interested in might be off, you know, off limits just due to the fact that you work with them or due to the fact that if you make an advance on them, then you're going to be, you know, accused of like, you know, harassment in the workplace. Um, I also think this is, you know, puts people between a rock and a hard place when they're young, because I know so many people who would prefer to date or only date people in their industry because, you know, people in your industry understand your lingo and they understand your lifestyle. I know a lot of, you know, pilots who only date pilots. And I know a lot of, you know, doctors and nurses who only date people in the medical industry. And I know a lot of people in the food industry who only date people in the food industry. And I think it's just, you know, you have Mm -hmm. that common ground. Well, and it stands to reason, right? You spend most of your waking day in your job in those cases. Right. So, uh, you know, so why wouldn't those be the first people that you might want to reach out to for um, a deeper relationship? And yet that's exactly exactly. And so I think that really puts young people in this weird predicament where they they do want to find relationships and they do want to date and and they want people who are successful. They want people who are on their same level and they want people who understand their life and who understand their industry but where are you going to find those people in the workplace, you know, and where can you probably not date the people, you know, is in your workplace and where is it possibly, you know, career ending if you say the wrong thing or make somebody feel uncomfortable, you know, it's the workplace. And so I think that's where people um, are really stuck uh, a little bit, you know, with, with dating and um, with just trying to, trying to find that lifelong person to spend Valentine's day with. <laughs> right, right. So uh, I have this note. I know we touched upon this, but is there more to say about whether or not this is just a first world problem? Or do you think we covered it already? I mean, I think I heard one time that you shouldn't just discount first world problems because they only happen in the first world. Just, you know, if it's a problem in your life, then it's a problem in your life and you should absolutely validate it. Um, I think it's not as much of a first world problem as it is a drawing boundaries problem and, you know, realizing that um, everybody's different. We just live in a country of 330 million different people in a world of 8 billion different people. And 
everybody's going to act differently. And some people are going to make you feel uncomfortable at times. And, you know, other people are just going to be assholes. And um, some people respond very well to company diversity training and some people don't. Um, Yeah, I think it's, I think it's a first world problem, but I don't think that diminishes it um, entirely. Well, that just about wraps up this episode, folks. Once I hit the stop button on the recorder, I'll be rushing to the nondescript FBI vehicle waiting outside. Hopefully I can make a quick exit before the angry mob arrives. If all goes well, I'll be taken to an undisclosed location, hopefully a U.S. Caribbean protectorate. I want to thank my two fantastic co-hosts, Ellie and Bernice, for their usual great work. And I hope to see them again soon, although I am having a little trouble with this Kevlar vest they gave me. We hope you'll follow or subscribe to Scandal Sheet on your favorite pod platform and share it with all your friends. We'd also love it if you'd leave us a shameless, over-the-top rave review on Apple Podcasts especially. That helps us build audience. Also, we want to hear from you! You can reach us online at scandalsheetpod.com, Facebook, or Twitter, or just send us an email to contact at scandalsheetpod.com. We'll see you next time on Scandal Sheets. Copyright 2022. Thad Helsley Media LLC. All rights reserved.